I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Friday. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Deidre Bosa and Julia Borston. Carl's got the morning off. Today, NASDAQ back near the flat line after a short-lived bounce. Is the pivot from growth to value played out? Was this just a dead cat bounce for tech? Later, a rare downgrade for Disney. Why Guggenheim thinks Parks and Disney Plus are in trouble. And finally, a poor retail sales number could mean more pain for an already beaten down e-commerce trade. We've got the names to target on the dip, maybe this hour. D. Maybe indeed. And we're going to start with the markets and the recent sell off in tech. The Nasdaq has been moving between gains and losses this morning. Currently right on the flat line. Cloud and fintech still lower following a two and a half percent drop yesterday. Dom Chu has more on what's moving. Dom, it's really all over the place this morning. I'm looking at the SOX ETF and the K-Web. Those are higher today. So there's a good amount of muscle memory, right, uh, Deirdre, when, when it comes to the markets overall, because we've been in such a long-term bull market that hasn't seen any real market pullback since the real pandemic started and then ended back in the spring of 2020. If you look at the NASDAQ, it's the reason why you are seeing at least a little bit of stability here. But we have been moving off the highs of the session, and you can see we're trying to hold this range that we've had over the last three or four months. If we, though, kind of break below that area. We're going to try to target some of those fall lows that we see here as a place for the Nasdaq. Now, with regard to the individual components within there, taking a look at some of the sectors and industries within that broader trade and technology, you have to look at the semiconductors and the software stocks because they are two very big components, two ones that have played out very well over the last year, but have gone in different directions just in the last couple of months. If you take a look at the white line, that's the IGV, which is an ETF that tracks the software side of things. Look at how steep that decline has been just in the last three to four months. Meanwhile, the semiconductor ETF has held up relatively well. It's only off about 4% from its record highs. Meanwhile, this particular software ETF has now pulled back more and more than that, way more than that. Now it's kind of in that so-called uh, at least correction phase, if you will. Now, uh, taking a look overall at some of the stocks that we want to keep an eye on today, each of these names, ServiceNow, Lumen Technologies, Tesla, and NVIDIA, have been stocks that have been hit by at least 5% or more in yesterday's trade. Today, they're all in the green. We want to see how much of a bounce there really is. ServiceNow is up by about a percent. Big losses yesterday. Lumen's up half a percent. Tesla's up three quarters of one percent and one and a half percent gains for NVIDIA. That semiconductor trade is going to be big. And then the stock that everybody really wants to watch right now is Microsoft, specifically because it has seen a pullback to a level that's now 12 percent roughly below the record highs that we saw just earlier this fall. So it's entered that so-called correction phase that some traders like to allude to when there's a 10% pullback or more. But what's important here is that Microsoft at these levels, you got to go all the way back to October to see some of the same kind of price action here. So if Microsoft is one of those stocks that can hold up, it might indicate at least something, guys, with regard to that broader trade, not just within software, but technology overall as well. Very interesting, Dom. Now, as you look beyond technology to some of the big movers today in the financial space, I mean, J.P. Morgan, those shares down 5% now, 
um, on those uh, the lower than expected outlook. I'm wondering what you anticipate in terms of maybe some movement from tech stocks into not just uh, more value oriented tech stocks, but into other sectors entirely, especially as we get into earnings season. So, so Julia, it's, it's an excellent point that you bring up, because if you take a look over the past year, some of the best performing parts of the market have been in that so-called value cyclical side of things, the ones that are more value oriented that tend to do better when the economy kind of gets full steam. With that, we look to companies that are in the energy sector, right? Energy was the best performing sector by a decent amount last year. It's also handily the best performing sector so far year-to-date period. Yes, it's just two weeks into it. I know it. But look at the year-to-date moves. We're talking 14 15% higher here. And some of the biggest stocks today are in energy, oil and gas and whatnot. The banks, though, also part of that kind of top three story in sectors last year. The interesting part about banks is over the last several years, going into any particular earnings season, it always seems as though there's a bit of a lull and a little bit of a pullback in some of those bank stocks as you get around that earnings season time. But whether or not that financial trade actually plays out to actually some more upside momentum this time around remains to be seen. Yes, it was a decent trade last year, but you wonder whether or not in a rising rate environment, certain bank stocks are going to do better than others. You can kind of see the divergence, Julia, even just today, right? Wells Fargo, the way that it does, outperforming its, its targets and expectations versus J.P. Morgan on some of those lowered outlook comments. So, uh, again, even in financials, you got to look to whether or not it's the traditional lenders that do well or whether or not capital markets activity starts to pick up if things get more volatile down the line as well. That's Goldman Sachs. That's Morgan Stanley. Yeah, well, Dom, it's going to be a fascinating earnings season this time around. Now, turning to Disney, Guggenheim downgrades from buy to neutral this morning. The firm warning about a slowdown in profit growth in the company's direct-to-consumer and parks divisions, which they say is now below consensus through fiscal 2024. They do note, however, that Disney's plan to up content spending by as much as 8 billion dollars in 2022 seems underappreciated. Today's losses have the stock turning negative on the year. The stock is down over 4% right now. Now, this comes as UBS also cuts its price target on Netflix. They go from $720 to $690, saying although they believe net ads accelerated in Q4, momentum is fading, also pointing out that the industry is still digesting outsized growth from the pandemic. Now, it has been a hard start to 2022 for the streamers. Count Roku as another notable laggard. Guys, this quarter, as we look ahead to Netflix earnings next week, it seems like the real battle is going to be over those international subscribers trying to lock in growth. And I think a lot of people are trying to figure out which of these subscription services they don't need. So I do anticipate we'll mm. see more consolidation among these subscription players going forward, D. <clears throat> Go ahead, John. No, 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 just wondering, big picture, Julia, thinking about Disney, how are they post-Iger? We went through the uh, kind of pandemic period of parks being shut down, uh, the kind of Disney Plus euphoria on how they were doing out of the gate. But, you know, there's, what's the song? Uh, We don't talk about Bruno. That's become sort of a viral (laughs) hit on TikTok. All of a sudden, Lin-Manuel Miranda's uh, song from from Encanto. And you've also got some of the Marvel mess they seem to Mm -hmm. have cleaned up a bit. Um, I don't know. Uh, Are they fundamentally strong right now, do you think, heading into whatever the next phase looks like? Well, look, you know, I think I, we have to remember we talk about Iger's departure, but Bob Chapek has been CEO for nearly two years now. It was nearly two years ago that they announced 
that executive change. But Deirdre, it seems like if you look at the two basic parts of the business that have been impacted by the pandemic, streaming has benefited. They need to maintain momentum. And then the parks, Deirdre, I mean, the parks have really suffered, but there is huge demand. And it seems like they will eventually bounce back. And and there's just massive demand. It's just a question of how expensive it is to manage that demand. It's that reopening part of the trade. And uh, John, I'm I'm not happy about you putting that song back in my head. We must have watched (laughs) Encanto about 100 times. Um, But here's my question, guys. And as we talk about streaming versus the parks, is Disney a growth or a value stock? We know and we talk a ton about Disney Plus and how Iger sort of transformed it into this growth stock. Look at the forward P.E. value. Before the pandemic, it was around 16. Now it's 38 versus 48 for Netflix. Um, Over the last month, it's been interesting to see how it's been trading as well. It's sort of almost on the flat line, a little bit in positive territory versus the rest of tech, which we know has sold off so much, John. Uh, So it's an interesting dynamic that will play out this year and how investors treat this name. Yes, we talk about subs all the time, but as Julia mentioned, Parks is a big part of that reopening picture and perhaps value trade. Well, you said valuations or alluded to them, so somewhere a tech check angel got its wings. And with that, we should turn uh, back to the markets. Our next guest pointing out that since the start of the year, high P.E. stocks have taken a big hit. He expects low P.E. stocks to lead the market higher in 2022. Joining us now, Credit Suisse co-head of quantitative research and senior equity strategist Patrick Palfrey. Patrick, um, Low P.E. stocks, though, I mean, sometimes they're low P.E. for a reason. Why is 22 the year to pay attention to P.E. as opposed to price to revenue and momentum? I I think you raised an important point. I mean, certain times you can definitely get low P.E. stocks that are broken stories, and that's not really our focus here. Really, what we're looking for is what low P.E. stocks represent in aggregate. And typically, these are companies with greater economic sensitivity, a greater exposure to inflation in a positive way in the sense that they benefit from rising inflation, and they often trade at a discount. So what we're looking for is those stocks, given those two characteristics, to really lead in the year ahead because we have a big year expected for the economy. Inflation is running hot, and those companies often capture the prices and pass it on and, and get that through operating leverage. So there's a couple reasons why they win, but I think those are the two big reasons. Now, what about, Patrick, some of these growth stocks that have just gotten really hammered. Uh, We used to talk about Zoom and and how much it had soared. It was up uh, above 450 at one point. It's at 157 and change uh, per share this morning. New 52-week low, Stitch Fix, similar. Like, if you believed in the fundamental story of these companies, and I don't think uh, in a lot of cases is reason to believe their thesis uh, have completely fallen apart, at what point do you hunt for value there? Well, I, I think you could start looking for value there now. And I think it just depends on where the growth is coming from. A lot of these big secular names, like some of the ones you mentioned, experienced tremendous growth at the start of the crisis as they benefited from uh, the environment that we were in, particularly people working from home. It's not to say those stories aren't going to work going forward, but I think what's important is where is the profit trajectory for those companies over the next one to three to four years? Right now, investors are looking at uh, other companies where the growth is available, and then they're getting a valuation uh, benefit there as well in terms of an entry point, and they're taking those opportunities. They're, they're in areas like semis. They're in other sectors. Mm-hmm. So I think you need to find the growth, and I think the valuation will ultimately come through. But but look for the growth first. 
Right. We talked about this actually earlier this week, Patrick, about some of the high tech growth names that are holding up better than others. If you come to mind, Snowflake and Datadog. Um, so what you're talking about, right, is it is possible to pick some winners within this higher growth area and not throw out the bath, the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. Absolutely. I think I think a lot of people are painting this with a very broad brush. They're looking at the valuations for a lot of these companies and they're kind of selling them wholesale, whether it's because they're trading it through an ETF vehicle or or another uh, potential option. So I think it just depends if you're seeing, if you're going through the selection process, pay attention to the fundamentals, pay attention to the valuation, but really focus on where that profits are going. Yeah, Patrick, right now we're looking on the screen at some of the Tech Plus top and bottom performers year to date. Looking ahead, which are the names or even the sort of subsectors that you would point to that you think of the most potential right now? So software, I think, is one of the areas where the valuations are extremely high and the growth just isn't as good as what we've seen over the past couple of years. And that's why I think the problems arise. Where I would encourage investors to look is within the semi space. The growth remains very strong given the supply chain disruptions that we're experiencing. And the Internet of Things is really propelling chip demand everywhere. Uh, On top of that, they're fixed cost businesses. So they pass through prices. They can leverage their machinery, their equipment. So they have great operating leverage in that backdrop. And they're an area that I think really works in this environment. Hardware to a, to a lesser degree, but I, I'd focus on sentence. Okay. Patrick Palfrey from Credit Suisse. Have a good weekend. And a big miss this morning on retail sales. What it could mean for the growth of e-commerce stocks. Courtney Reagan is here. And how's that for us? Courtney. Hi there, Dee. So it was a big miss. But economists and retail analysts are kind of looking at this in different ways. So total retail sales fell 1.9% in December from the month prior, much worse than expected, but grew nearly 17% since last year. JP Morgan economist Daniel Silver says, quote, the news from the past week, including stronger inflation and downward revision to November retail sales, was negative on the whole for real consumption in the fourth quarter. Whereas J.P. Morgan retail analyst Matt Boss said on CNBC earlier that it was, quote, actually the best holiday in nearly 20 years and the underlying tone is actually very robust. Now, Silver said the December sales drop from November, quote, wasn't all a COVID story because non-store retail sales plunged 8.7 percent in December. So we weren't necessarily shifting from store to online. But retail analysts remind us that a decent amount of online holiday shopping was done earlier this year because of worries about shipping times and availability with the ongoing supply chain congestion. Based on what we know from retailers and what shoppers have said in many surveys, that is. Now, looking at the numbers compared to last year, December non-store retail sales grew nearly 11%, which some classify as actually impressive after the big online growth we saw last December. So there's a number of different ways that you could read this report. And of course, if you're looking month over month, it's not necessarily an encouraging trend, John, for perhaps what's to come. But if you're looking at the holiday sales quarter or or two months, maybe altogether, perhaps it wasn't so bad. Yeah. So the takeaway seems to be, hey, there are all these warnings that presciently from you, of course, and others about what was happening in the supply chain. Hey, shop early from Adobe and others. We were hearing that is indeed what consumers are doing. Uh, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, not as big as they had been in the past and probably neither were uh, those dates later in December. So when you look at the um, omni-channel related numbers here, when you look at the uh, e-commerce related numbers, 
Those were higher, too, were they not? So is this, in a way, encouraging for tech? Yeah, again, yeah. So so when you look at that month over month, to your point, John, from November, they did fall, the non-store retail number, which is, is largely, of course, e-commerce catalog sales are in there, too, but not quite as big. Year over year, though, they were up when you're looking at December and up double digits, which is actually about in line from where the season was projected to be. And so I don't think overall, when I look at these year over year numbers, that they were all that discouraging. Now, that being said, of course, inflation plays a key point and is going to likely really drag on our ability or maybe interest in spending on some of these discretionary categories going forward. So I think you could look at this a couple different ways, but I agree. I don't think it's totally discouraging for technology. And again, because of some of the supply chain issues, there were many shoppers that ordered online and then picked up in store, which lowers the cost for the retailers of shipping that good, that final mile, because the consumers did the work. Yeah. National Retail Federation, big show happening in New York uh, over the next few days. There'll be a lot of talk about that. I'll be talking to IBM's CEO, Arvind Krishna, about it, as a matter of fact. Courtney, thanks. Still to come, upcoming changes to the NASDAQ 100, plus why gaming could be a big growth driver for social stocks. Tech Check is just getting started. Time now for a gut check on Peloton, the interactive fitness provider set to be dropped from the NASDAQ 100 after just 13 months, replaced by Old Dominion Freightline. That change taking effect before trading opens on January 24th. The volatile stock often either a top leader or laggard on the NDX. Today, it is the biggest laggard, Peloton that is, down 80% over the last year. Shares sinking once again this morning on that news. And Julia, the market in a nutshell here. Peloton out and old value name in. Out with the new, in with the old. Uh, in, in other words, in other uh, news, the week started with console game giant Take-Two Interactive buying mobile game maker Zenga for a 64% premium. Now, since that deal, Zenga shares have soared over 50%. Take-Two shares are 7% lower on concerns largely about the valuation of that purchase. But one of the reasons that Take-Two is buying Zenga is because of its mobile game strength on social platforms. And across social networks, mobile and console games are a key driver of conversation, community, and ad dollars. Ads within games on mobile devices are projected to grow to $5.75 billion this year, with an additional $2.6 billion going to ads in video game content this year. That's according to eMarketer. Twitter reports that Q4 was its biggest quarter ever for gaming conversations with 2.4 billion tweets in 2021 about gaming. That's up 14% from the prior year. And Facebook tells us that more than 900 million people play games, watch video game content, or connect in gaming groups on Facebook every month. Views on Facebook gaming, that's Meta's version of Twitch, grew 47% last year, while Twitch, which is owned by Amazon, grew 45%. Now, Reddit also reports that gaming was its second highest viewed topic last year after only crypto. The social platforms want to keep that game content because ad dollars follow that engagement, that conversation. App install ads for games have been a reliable growth driver 
for the social platforms. And this is an area that has drawn the attention of all the tech giants. It's why Amazon bought Twitch and why Google has made a big push for its YouTube gaming app. So, John, the question really here is who's going to win this war or does everyone own a piece of it? I am questioning what the war is. You know, we had Iron Source on this week, D, and I am fascinated with the idea of whoever has more data about not just uh, what games are being downloaded, but what games are liked by people who also like other games, what they're doing within those games, what their other interests are, that that becomes really valuable, not just for advertising, but also for knowing what people will pay for. And I'm curious in whose strategy is the best, whether it's really about having console, PC, and mobile games, or it's about having Mm -hmm. access to data about all of that, not just within your own ecosystem, but others as well. It's all about the data, right? And that's why I think you wonder if big tech is going to make further moves into the space. Julia, uh, I spoke to a source who was saying that with the Take-Two Zynga deal, uh, big tech and the prospect of them pushing further in or maybe the threat factored large in those discussions. Um, but given all the regulatory pressures, can you grow organically or would it have to be through M&A? Could you ever see Amazon or Netflix acquiring one of the bigger gaming companies to you know, really push their foothold, not just in that communication side, but the actual gaming or console side of things. Yeah, the more people spend time doing games, the question is, how do you keep them playing those games on your platform and collect all of that data? It's all about the data, as you said, Dee. Now, speaking of social media, a few companies are facing new subpoenas as part of the Congressional Select Committee's investigation into the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The committee is demanding records from Alphabet, Meta, formerly known as Facebook, Reddit, and Twitter relating to the spread of misinformation, efforts to overturn the 2020 election, domestic violent extremism, and foreign influence in the 2020 election. Chairman Benny Thompson saying in a statement that two key questions are how the spread of misinformation and violent extremism contributed to the January 6th attack and what steps, if any, social media companies took to prevent their platforms from being breeding grounds for radicalizing people to violence. We have reached out to the four companies, Reddit, Meta, and Alphabet, giving us varying statements explaining how they're working with the committee. Twitter had a no comment. So, Dee, my question here is, is this time going to be different in terms of this, this scrutiny from Capitol Hill? Yeah, I, I, I'm sure all three of us, after covering this for years, are a little skeptical that this time is going to be different. Uh, perhaps we're already, as, as we speak, getting more headlines sort of on the regulation front. The Journal putting out a piece looking at how uh, Google misled publishers and advertisers for years about the pricing and processes of its auctions. That's according to uh, unredacted allegations um, in a lawsuit by state attorneys General John. So the headlines keep coming. Stocks continue to not really move much in response to them. Um, But if we see Capitol Hill taking aim once again, we see testimonies. um, It does eventually influence public perception. Yeah. Remember when we were talking so much about regulatory overhang, the impact on big tech and how much of a discount you had to factor in all of that? And it was, oh, something's really going to happen this time. I'm starting to wonder if on Capitol Hill, they just love having the big tech pinata to hit because you hit it enough times. You know, you put it in your fundraising emails and the dollars (laughs) flow in, you know, the candy comes out. You don't actually want to completely break all the pinatas. You just (laughs) want to keep having them there. Yeah, you you just want to keep having them there to hit. Maybe. 
Uh, we'll or see. maybe it's not candy inside. Something, something more untoward. Uh, <laughs> fair point. As we head to break, guys, uh, check out Dogecoin. We haven't actually checked on this one in a while, but up 15 percent, and it's higher after Elon Musk says that Tesla will accept the crypto for some purchases. And then coming up, don't miss the highlights from John's conversation with Snowflake CEO, Snowflake CEO Frank Slootman. Tech Check is back in two. Near the bottom of the hour here. Welcome back to Tech Check. Deirdre Bosa here with John Fort and Julia Borston. NASDAQ down again this morning after a steep drop yesterday on pace for its third straight week in the red. Santoli has a closer look at how to play that beat up tech trade in a moment. But first, it is time for a news update. Rahel Sullivan has that for us. Rahel. Indeed it is. Deirdre, good morning. And here's what's happening at this hour. Financials weighing heavily on stocks following disappointing quarterly results from some of the banks this morning. J.P. Morgan, the biggest loser in the S&P 500. The bank says that it faces a couple of years of below target returns, though quarterly results did top estimates. Citigroup also down on higher expenses and weakness at its consumer banking unit. Wells Fargo, meantime, bucking the trend with a 4% gain. The bank is pairing strong top and bottom results with tight cost controls. BlackRock, meantime, down more than 2% on mixed results, but the company says that assets under management top $10 trillion, cementing its spot as the world's largest money manager. Rising inflation concerns have pushed consumer sentiment back down. The early January number is the second lowest in a decade. December retail sales were also down far more than expected. They fell nearly 2% as Americans really struggled with shortages and higher prices. And manufacturing output also supposed a surprise decline in December. Another drop in auto plant production offsetting efforts to restock lean inventories in other sectors. You're now up to date. Julia, I'll send it back to you. Thanks, Rahel. And the Nasdaq is back in the red right now. We've talked about relative valuations within tech today, but how about valuations over time? After yesterday's sharp downturn for stocks, Mike Santoli is looking at the Nasdaq's performance over the last few years. Mike? Yeah, Julia, the Nasdaq 100 has really been at the the kind of the point of the spear in the expansion of valuations of the market overall. Uh, still well above pre-pandemic levels in terms of uh, Nasdaq 100 uh, forward price earnings ratio. For example, we got up to 30. Uh, I was around low 20s before that. Now down to about 27. This is a two-year chart, though, and it shows you we're a little bit of a significant point uh, in this thing. Uh, if you go to around the um, the election, the 2020 election, that's basically your Line. You could connect all those different lows, all the different pullbacks, more or less gathered themselves up around that level. Some techni- technical analysts are pointing out that it's around the 150-day moving average. It's not a very commonly uh, watched thing. But the point being, there has been this steady uptrend. We're testing it right now. It hasn't lost at all. But if, in fact, it is a longer-term valuation adjustment, if it's going to be a complete mean reversion, there's probably more to go. If not, if we're at a higher level of valuations for these higher-quality businesses and the overall stock market for various reasons, negative real yields or any of the rest, uh, then, in fact, maybe things can, uh, can kind of get their footing before that happens. Also want to point out, you know, remember what happened. That's the that's the COVID crash there. But you also had a period from September to January, September of 2020 into January of 2021 and beyond where, you know, the Nasdaq 100 didn't do a whole lot. So we'll see if this is just another uh, kind of step back to let the rest of the market uh, come to the fore or if it's a, a little more of a consequential decline in this leading area, guys. Mike, historically, how long do these tests usually take to proctor? 
I don't know if there's a real good rule on that. I would say multiple weeks. It would be a typical way that a routine pullback slash correction would uh, would really play out. Uh, difficult to say if that's if that's all we're in right now. That's that's part of the tricky part is that, uh, you know, a correction looks a whole lot like the beginning of a bear market. You know, and, and so it's not as if there's a way to say that we can set the clock on it. But, yeah, I would say multiple weeks, high single digit declines has been just about the rule, uh, at least uh, for the last year and a half, two years. Mike, I was talking with uh, Dan Niles, a frequent guest on a live stream earlier this week about the Nasdaq's fall. And he was sort of making a similar argument, but saying that based on history and he looked all the way back to the dot com boom, that we could see the Nasdaq drop 20 percent plus or more. But the composition was much different back then. Right. And I think that's important yeah. to know, even though when we talk about these high growth companies, they're real companies with real earnings, even if that's further off in the future. Exactly. Uh, now, there were certainly, I would say, if you looked at the top five of the NASDAQ back at the peak in the year 2000, also real companies. We're talking about Microsoft, Intel, Cisco uh, and such, but they were just valued so much more highly. I mean, I don't think the most expensive of the big ones right now is Amazon based on earnings. And pretty much all of the NASDAQ stocks were above 50 times back then, which is where Amazon roughly is. So, yeah, there, there's a certain difference in terms of the level of maturity and at least arguably the level of predictability. But another factor here is we have had this situation where the market as a whole became very concentrated. We know that. Earnings are concentrated, revenues are concentrated, and uh, stock market weightings were very concentrated. If that's going to spill in reverse, there's no real kind of drawing a line to say when that's over. Uh, because you do, as I mentioned earlier, Apple and Microsoft are more than 13% of the S&P right now. Nothing says they have to stay at that big a weighting. Mm. And I do wonder how leverage, options, and crypto might play into all of that as we forge ahead, Mike. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I spoke with Snowflake CEO Frank Slootman yesterday in a Fort Knox update ahead of next week's release of his newest book, Amp It Up, leading for hypergrowth with high expectations, urgency, and intensity. Among the things Frank and I discussed, digital transformation has become a bit of a cliche, but one conversation he had with the CEO of a big insurance company crystallizes how the shift is underway. I remember I had a conversation, you know, with, with the CEO of Geico, and uh, he, he didn't want to hear anything about architecture and all these kinds of software things. He's like, I believe it. Uh, but he said, look, you know, uh, in Florida, we have maybe higher bodily injury claims than neighboring states. A, how do I explain that? And B, once I can explain it, can I then predict it so I can change policies, I can change pricing? That, that's really what what data and software is going to do, right? And it's all lights out, light speed, you know, and it's no longer creating dashboards and people eyeballing data and deciding whether it means something to them, right? <laughs> little shade maybe at the dashboard crowd there. Snowflake revenue more than doubled in the most recent quarter year over year, reflecting that shift. Slootman's book offers up some principles he's used to bring three companies public, Data Domain, ServiceNow, and now, of course, Snowflake. Julia? Well, what I think is so interesting here is what he's describing, the idea of being able to understand data to make it really work for you and make make industries just dramatically more efficient. That's really what the sort of technological revolution has been about. And if you look at how we're seeing all these old industries, such as insurance, really embrace machine learning, AI, mm -hmm. Deirdre, it seems like, you know, he's making a good argument for the transformative power of machine learning. 
Yeah, and we've seen a proliferation of these, you know, so-called enterprise AI or data analytics companies come public, John, over the last few years. Uh, Snowflake, probably the most, one of the most successful, but you've got C3AI, Palantir, uh, Unity, a few, not Unity, excuse me, UiPath, uh, a few others in the space and different performances, but they're all there to sort of serve that thought that Slootman gets into is that every industry sort of needs that to back up their thesis and their fundamentals, how they're going to operate. Yep. Different buckets yeah, for every sure. Every industry needs to become a tech industry. <laughs> One other name to check as we go to break, that Sirius XM getting a downgrade from JPM to underweight. The stock is currently the second biggest laggard on the NDX. That stock down over 4%. Don't go away. We're back right after the short break. Street boosting Apple this morning. Piper Sandler naming a, quote, place to hide in the current market environment, citing 5G adoption and wearables growth. Plus, Loop Capital joining J.P. Morgan and B of A, giving the stock of street high price target of 210 with a bullish outlook on iPhone revenue growth. Susquehanna is also anticipating iPhone growth in 2022, but Bernstein's Tony Sakanagi worries that potential work from home wind downs could lead to a sales regression. Indeed, I'm old enough to remember the great iPhone order cut scare of, oh, it was just 2021, (laughs) where supposedly (laughs) demand for iPhones was lagging and everybody was supposed to worry. But then somewhere along the line, it hit a $3 trillion market cap and now everybody's excited again. Yeah, that 3T. You know, with Sakanagi, he likes that legacy trade, which we've talked a lot about over the last few weeks, he says HP and IBM appear to have captured a little benefit from COVID. So there's limited risk of give back. But I mean, Julia, <laughs> limited risk of give back, because you take a look at a chart of IBM over the last five years or so, there's not much to give back. It was at 133 back in 2010. So to John's point, are these sort of trades? What's your time horizon of investing? Um, but yes, that three trillion hard to move up from there. Although we said that at one trillion and two trillion. Yeah, and for Apple, I guess the question is, what's its next leg of growth? So on one hand, you have the supply chain issues abating, so those risks are are being minimized going forward. But then also, you know, Piper Sandler points to these other growth areas, saying that Apple's going to be a big player in the health space and also the auto space. And of course, I've been talking about how Apple's expected to introduce an augmented reality headset, glasses at some point at the end of this year, early next D. So I think it's really for Apple's like, can they maintain that pace of growth with all these new fields they're moving into? Yeah, though we saw some headlines this morning and that headset may be delayed. So we'll watch that one for sure. Meanwhile, guys, if you still think the office is dead, Google disagrees. It is spending another billion dollars to expand its London footprint. Read more about that company's return to office plans at CNBC.com. Tech Check is back right after this. Let's get a gut check on fintech. The global fintech ETF down for the week and lower by more than 11% this month. It's on pace for its third negative month in a row. Now, some of the worst performing components this week, Vertex, Affirm, Bill.com, and Upstart. 
Financials, on the other hand, doing well recently with the S&P Bank ETF moving higher to start the year as interest rates moved higher. So are investors moving from fintech to financials? Bank earnings now rolling out, but the stocks are struggling today. JP Morgan topping estimates but lowering guidance. City beating revenue estimates but showing a decrease in profits. So, John, as we took, take a look at those stocks, JP Morgan Chase off 5.5%. First Republic down over 5%. Looks like Wells Fargo is the one winner there, up 3%. Yeah, times change. After the break, a former SpaceX employee speaks out about the company culture, which she says is rife with sexism. Ashley Kosak will join us next with more on her experience working at an Elon Musk company. We are back in two. Welcome back. Microsoft pledging new transparency on sexual harassment and gender discrimination. The company says it will hire a new law firm that has never done work for Microsoft in the past to independently review its policies. Shareholders passed a resolution during the company's 2021 annual meeting calling on Microsoft to review its policies after reports that Bill Gates had acted inappropriately uh, toward employees during his tenure at the company. Uh, Gates left Microsoft's board in 2020. The review will culminate in a public report to be released this spring. Microsoft says it will include findings of any investigations into specific harassment allegations, including those against Gates. D. Well, speaking of company culture, John, our next guest pointed the spotlight at her former employer, SpaceX. Ashley Kosek wrote an essay that the space company's workplace is, quote, rife with sexism. Subsequent investigations from CNBC, The New York Times and The Verge found multiple other employees who made similar allegations, including one who filed a lawsuit against the company in 2020. Let's bring in the author of that original piece, former mission integration engineer at SpaceX, Ashley Kosek. Ashley, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about this. Why don't you first lay out your experience, what you found at SpaceX? Yeah, definitely. Um, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, uh, overall, my experience was, you know, um, I was just working hard to, um, you know, uh, push forward, like, what I believe in and what are some of my core values. Um, I've always been, you know, a strong advocate for women in STEM and for the environment, and so this practice was an experience in believing in my values and understanding that. Right. Ashley, how was it received then, some of the complaints that you brought? And this might come as a surprise to some because SpaceX does have a female president and COO, Gwen Shotwell. Did this reach her level? If so, what was the response there? Um, yeah, there are definitely some responses uh, throughout the company. Um, out of you know the hundreds of people who've reached out to give me their support, um, about 80 of them came from SpaceX. But something I think that's important to note is that you know um, like 25 of those people are people who shared with me that they also had similar experiences at the company. So um, you know I'm proud that I could I'm proud that I could like uh, give them the opportunity to like come forward and sort of like. Uh, just have someone who understood what they had gone through. Ashley, as you think about your experiences at SpaceX, do you think there's specific things that the company could have done to have a more inclusive, less toxic culture in, in terms of your experience? Because I'm just thinking about this in terms of other companies who are watching the situation and trying to reflect on their, on their own policies. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I don't think that I can say that I have like any sort of like one size fit all solution for like this problem at this point. But I think, you know, if you're looking for one, I think 
I encourage you to just start looking internally at your experiences and listening to the people within your company uh, and like listening to what they um, what what they've gone through. That's the best place to start. Actually, in an interview uh, several weeks ago, Elon Musk described SpaceX saying this place is basically like a technology monastery. You know, there are some women here, but not many. And it's remote. Um, When I think of monasteries, I don't think of harassment. And so to me, especially given the fact that Tesla uh, had also had some accusations of sexual harassment back in in the 2017 time frame, it it seems strange to me that he described it that way. What was your reaction to that description if you heard it? And what about the culture do you think uh, failed to deal with the issues that you experienced? Uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, like when it comes to topics like this and especially discussing, um, a diverse work environment, I think, um, encouraging the opinions and ideas of people who come from underrepresented group is always what's going to give you a leading edge. And so by quickly dismissing the ideas of people who have used their, who have learned to use their voices strategically and speak when they have something major to say, um, you know, I think you sort of like lose out on major opportunities for your company and you start to like fill that edge that you've worked so hard to sharpen. Yeah. And Ashley, you yourself, you left SpaceX for Apple. Is that right? And do you talk to other women who are still at SpaceX who are looking at different opportunities? We talk a lot about the Silicon Valley bro culture. Do you think that that is infiltrating the space space as well now? Yeah. Um, I've definitely, I've definitely been able to speak with a lot of different women about this experience. Um, I, yeah, my, my plan moving forward is pretty much to continue working with schools and colleges and summer STEM camps and basically keep going on panels. And um, overall, I've partnered with Dan Hawk, who's the principal scientist of the United First Nations Planetary Defense Group. And so um, we're going to be developing a green propellant for the future of space exploration. And so that's my plan moving forward. Well, Ashley, we really appreciate you coming on to chat with us about your experiences. Thank you. We'll track what you do next. We should also say that CNBC has reached out to SpaceX repeatedly for a comment since that piece was published back in December. And once again, yesterday, SpaceX has not responded. Julia. And if you've missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. You can listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. The Nasdaq is back in the green and Tech Tech is back in a moment. As we head into the final few minutes of Tech Check, the Nasdaq is just hanging on to positive territory, up about one-tenth of one percent. It has been flipping in and out of black to red, John, throughout the morning as we recover a little bit from a pretty rough start to the year. Yeah, still a lot of day to go, though. And one more thing before we do go for Tech Check. Too long, didn't read, doesn't just apply to a website's terms of service. It's also now the name of a new bipartisan bill aiming to take those agreements and make them more transparent. Known as the TLDR Act for short, the legislation would require mobile apps and select sites to break down their terms of service in a more consumer-friendly format. Those summaries would include details on the type of data being collected, an explanation of how that information is shared, and more. The act comes as the House Committee investigating the January 6th riots, subpoenas, Twitter, 
Reddit, Meta, and Alphabet for more information on the effort to overturn the 2020 election. The TLDR Act itself <laughs> is nine pages long, Too guys, long. so I didn't read it. But there is a one-pager. <laughs> there is a one-pager, Julia, that I was able to skim. I mean, talk about a topic that can get bipartisan support. There are just a few things that everyone can agree upon, and this seems to be one of them. Maybe robocalls is another D, but I feel like this seems like some some low-hanging fruit when it comes to rating in the tech giants. I just wonder if we can get a TLDR for sort of every aspect of life, a bill, um, but ironic that it was nine, nine pages, John. They didn't have a TLDR for the actual act. Uh, meanwhile, guys, as we get into the end of the show, the Nasdaq still hanging on just barely to positive earnings is starting in full. And next week, Julia, we've got Netflix on board. Tech earnings will take off. It'll be a, an interesting quarter to see how much of that pull forward effect and how the markets respond. Yeah, lots of questions about the pull forward, and everyone is going to be watching guidance, John. The question is what to expect for the rest of the year. Indeed, but for now, I'm watching the semiconductors, some names continuing to have a good close to the week. Uh, LAM Research is up about 4.5% at the moment. Marvell up a little bit more than 4 Applied Materials better than 35 Qualcomm up 3 So those names we've been talking about, the difference in software performance, versus chips. It continues. And with that, let's get to the half and the judge. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.